0: Uh, thanks. First, thanks everybody. I'm um, Bill Giese. I uh, was the uh, creative director on Forza Motorsport 7. Uh, this is uh, John Knowles. He was the uh, design director on the uh, Forza Horizon series. Uh, again, thanks for coming out. Again, you know, I appreciate you guys taking the time. Uh, before we start though, I, I did want to thank um, uh, one p- person specifically, uh, Cherry. Where's Cherry? Oh, she's back there. Uh, no, no, it's fine. You can go. I'm, I'm going to talk nicely about you, so it's better when you are. Uh, uh, Turn 10 did an inclusive design sprint, uh, uh, I think about a month ago, um, and it was incredibly insightful to have SMEs like Cherry there um, to give their, again, their, their insight, their stories, um, and we, we learned a hell of a lot uh, that we took back to the team. Uh, so cool. So, what this is going to be is kind of more of a post-mortem. Uh, kind of how we've more of like happy accidents, how we fell backwards uh, into accessibility and inclusiveness, uh, because we were trying to build a game for more broader players. The way we determined it at the time was kids and elderly people. It was more about dexterity uh, than anything else. Uh, So, is anyone here not familiar with Forza? Is everyone familiar? Yeah, I don't have to do the spiel, and it sounds so self-serving when we talk about our own game. Uh, okay, so cool. Let me talk about it. So, uh, looking back about eighteen years. To better understand where we are today, you got to take a look back. Um, the racing industry at the beginning of 2000 was very different than it is today. Um, you know, you had things like the the Fast and the Furious had just started, so you know those you know those types of street racing games were really popular. Um, you know, outside of that, you had arcade-inspired games like Crazy Taxi, Mario Kart. Um, it was a very different, different time for racing. Uh, there was a growing community of players that wanted something more realistic, authentic, simulation-like. Um, and they, re- they really wanted to test out their skills and they, they found that um, uh, failure was a metric for challenge for them. Now again, this is a time when arcade games, were, you guys remember those arcade games You actually paid money. Uh, those games are still being translated over to console and so the design of those games was very different, right An arcade game is designed to literally take quarters from you. Um, and so a lot of those design mentalities were carried over to, to early racing titles right You didn't have you know simple you know navigation assists, you didn't have uh, interface overlays that made things easier. Um, you didn't have the ability to, to even restart a race. You couldn't these console games you couldn't restart. Um, you essentially were expected to succeed or start over. So, racing games were hard. Uh, all of them were really, really hard. Uh, and They were revered in their difficulty um, and, and, and how they punished players. Uh, in 2003, Jack Black, uh, he spent over 400 hours playing uh, PGR2, Project Gotham Racing 2, and he got all the platinum medals and the platinum uh, in that game was brutally hard. I think there's like one or two people in the studios that could get that. And when he beat it, he took this picture. This is, I think, uh, he was on the set of King Kong. And again, this is before, you know, the internet and anything else. So literally, this was a mail that was received. Um, and when we got it, we were so excited. Like this was a badge of honor. You know, uh, we passed it around the studio and we're like, yes, we did it. This game's hard. Aren't we great? Um, but you have to understand, you know, before you had any, you know, community, any websites, uh, YouTube, you had the development team that was making it and you had pretty much you know, traditional media reviewers that would talk about your game. and So, it was kind of this self-serving cycle of, of what a game should be and how fun is determined. And Back then, it meant it was hard and punishing and that was success. Uh, so, again, during this time, uh, this internal team uh, developed uh, in turn 10, um, and we were set off to create you know, a, a flagship simulation racing game. Uh, it was a charter to target Grand uh, Gran Turismo, which at the time outside of Mario Kart, was you know, the predominant king of, of racing games. Um, and guess what? We wanted to make the most realistic racing game we could, based on what, what, all the other stuff that was out in the, in the market at the time. And Halfway through development, we sat down, we got to play the first playable build, and as we started to, to pour over it, uh, you know, we looked at all this hard work that we had done based on the other titles that are out there in the marketplace. No assist, simulation physics. We even penalized the player credits when they would smash their car or even dent it. We'd take money from the player. Uh, so we done it. We made a great simulation game. It was hard. Uh, outside of our core um, group within our studio, no one was having a good time with it. Again, this was before usability, public betas. Um, so we kind of had to look in ourselves and go, "What the hell did we do wrong?" So we were finding again that while our game was accurate and simulation-like, um, it was just brutal to anyone who doesn't r- race cars professionally. So, at that time, uh, as we started to look at, at competitive titles as you normally do, uh, we started looking at other games. One of those games is MotoGP uh, 2. Well, it's not car racing, it was considered to be at the time you know, the definitive uh, bike racing game. And uh, One of the things they added was this, this arrow at the very top of the screen, and it had this little thing where it would glow red, where it would generally tell you when to, to slow down. Um, and as we started to look at this, we're like, "Wait a minute! Don't we have something in our game, in our backend debug tools that does this?" So we have something in our game called Drive Avatar. It's a technology we built where, essentially, as you're driving, we have uh, AI algorithm that, that uh, captures all your inputs, your uh, your, your steering, your braking, um, and then it generates that to basically recreate you out in, into the wild. And we have all these overlays that essentially would do things like when you should slow down, when the when you should uh, brake, where your apex it needs to be hit. So, we swapped out that debug AI, or sorry, that d- debug UI with some arrows, and we colored them based on, again, standard traffic lights, right? Green is go, yellow is slow down, red is you really need to slow down. Um, however, you know, our system was real-time, so you know, if you slowed down too much, it'd tell you to get back on the gas, and this was huge for us. Um, the system was easy to understand, uh, and it started to teach players where breaking zones were on the track. Um, again, this is a way to help us play our game better. Uh, quickly, be, you know, became that, that we need to do more. And as reviews hit, it, it became pretty clear we were able to let uh, uh, some new players kind of dip their toes into simulation racing. Uh, jump ahead a little bit to Forza Motorsport Three, um, you know, as going continuing our franchise into an E-rated title. Um, we knew that we were still missing the more casual player. Um, the, the original Wii was a huge title at the time. Um, I'm sure everyone had in, in, in this room had one. Um, and so, while most of our releases only had that suggested line that you saw before, for Forza 3 we also added rewind. Um, and so, with rewind, essentially, if you, you make a mistake or at any time you want to, you press a button and it'll, it'll, uh, the game will rewind for a few sections. And you know, they were unlimited to player. We didn't penalize players for using them. Um, and again, you know, not only that, we borrowed one of our another piece of our tar tech um, when it came to um, an auto brake system. So the game would essentially just break for you. So all you really had to do was steer and gas, um, and that was a big win for us. And you know, I'm sure you guys have. have talked a lot a lot about it today. And this was a, a, a step for us um, in also kind of going against the grain of our core community as well because when they hear stuff like this, they immediately think, you know, you're making a game for babies. This isn't for me. Um, and over the years as we start to, uh, you know, uh, add these remove these layers of assist that we've normally done, um, but let players choose what they want. Um, you know, anytime we announce a new game, we uh, up to release, there's all this speculation about how it's going to be ruined based on these new assists that we've had. But then when they get it in their hands, they quickly see it's stuff that they can choose how to play. Uh, another thing we tried once and only once was at the very beginning of the game letting the players choose uh, essentially who they are as a, as a driver casual regular or serious player um, obviously this was fraught with with again base assumptions uh, for us telling you know players hey as a casual player you want all the assists on as a serious player you want everything off and it caused obviously a couple problems first and foremost people do not know how to identify themselves in such a general way uh, we would get people play, choosing serious and going your game is too hard and we're like wow why don't you turn the assist they're like no I'm a good racer uh, and you're like, okay, gosh, you know, right? So we're not doing a good enough job educating you, but we're just assuming you want everything off. So uh, after uh, Forza Motorsport 3, a group of us went off and we started to on on the Connect uh, technology, and that was that was really fun for us because it was um, um, it was a new way for us to figure out how can we get um, more players to interact with our title uh, that are um, probably they think even a controller, which is basic to us. Um, is is too complicated, and of course, you know we looked at you know things for our core players like head tracking. So when you're driving and you you look into a turn, that works. Um, and we even just assumed building a connect uh, experience is like the real world. So we tried motions with H pattern shifts and e brake things, and it was a nightmare. It didn't work. It was no fun. Um, but whenever you ask somebody, hey, pretend like you're driving a car, the first thing they do is they put their hands at ten and two. Um, So while we already had, you know, an auto brake system into the game, we added uh, auto accelerate. So essentially, um, all the player essentially had to do was steer. The game would brake and it would accelerate for them. Um, At the same time, you know, because some of our cars, we wanted to keep the integrity of these cars that go, you know, 180 miles an hour. We added a steering assist. So if you got too far off, it's kind of like bumper bowling. It would kind of keep you in uh, the track as best as possible. Uh, and again, we were just developing this just for the Kinect. But as we then started to develop, develop a full title in Forza, uh, the, the in full game, we included this steering assist for all players. So it wasn't just the Kinect experience. This was something that everybody got. Um, and you know, it was awesome when we started to. We didn't realize, you know, that we were helping a group of players. It wasn't, you know, again, these are happy accidents from us. And so when we started to win some of these awards, it became in, incredibly clear that there's. Um, there's a market out there and there's people that want to be able to experience your game that normally can't, and we've got a long ways to go, us meaning Forza. Um, our arrival to, to Windows 10, uh, after we shipped Forza Motorsport 6, we did a, a PC port. This is our first time going to PC. We've predominantly been a, a console title, um, and you know, it was eye-opening for us to kind of see the peripherals the PC players were trying to, to use. Uh, we just assumed, again, you're going to use Xbox controller or you know um, Microsoft approved wheels. But uh, the majority of players we found were actually playing uh, PlayStation wheels. They were playing these weird peripherals that they had hacked together in order to get to work. Um, and I was like, okay, great. Moving forward, um, if we want to be able to hit other regions and more players, we need to have an open system with our, um, with our USB. So as we started development of Forza Motorsport 7, we wanted to open up that USB to support to not only the fan-requested wheels for the hardcore guys, but whatever device you enjoyed, uh, and this included things like the DualShock, um, which was pretty sacrilegious about two years ago to say that you know to go into Phil Spencer and say, "Hey, we're going to be supporting day and date with uh, DualShock on, on our new game on PC," um, and you know the rationale behind it was um, it's a very specific controller for a very specific uh, uh, audience. But for us, it helps us get into places we can't normally get, like Japan. Um, Xbox isn't a big deal in Japan. PlayStation obviously is, and so is PC. So being able to play your content uh, on PC with a controller device that they like uh, was huge for us. Uh, and then we kind of kind of went nuts. We just started plugging anything we had laying around in. Um, and this is absolutely true. I have played the game with a guitar, here a guitar, and a DDR pad. Um, and it was it was interesting for us because they were just stupid tests. I never expect anybody to, to play with a guitar here, guitar. Although you look awesome when you do it, um, but being able to map whatever buttons you want um, to be able to say, hey, you know, the old NES controller. What if you had to play Forza with just the, the D pad and two buttons? What are the things you would want to do? Um, it helped the team kind of go, okay, gosh, you know, what are the other things that we need to do to be able to empower you know players once once we release uh, play with the uh, uh, the devices that they want. Uh, And This laid the groundwork for us for uh, some of the the work John's going to talk about a little bit about the adaptive controller. Um, We're super excited about that um, and some of the opportunities that uh, that affords. Uh, And With that, I'm going to have John take over and talk a little bit more about inclusivity. All
1: right. Thank you, Bill. Okay. Let me adjust my window. I got more notes than Bill. Okay. So, uh, as Bill mentioned, we kind of stumbled into a lot of things, designing a game for a hardcore racer. when I started uh, at Turn 10 in 2010, I was on Forza 4 with Bill and working on some of those things, and it was really cool. Um, but soon thereafter, we started up another group, <clears throat> and we uh, we enlisted the help of Playground Games in Lemmington Spa, um, who you know are the developers of the Forza Horizon series, and they came up with a new title where they brought characters to Forza. Uh, In Forza, the car is always the star, but in Horizon, it began to share the stage with humans, because we needed uh, some authenticity to lend to this fictional Horizon Festival that's full of cars and music and people. Um, So we got people everywhere. And uh, the player took on the role uh, of a rookie driver seeking to become champion of the Horizon Festival. Um, Very light narrative, Uh, your character didn't talk, but was featured in cinematics with various other characters who guided you along your quest. Um, Which is kind of fun and new, but the first game featured a young silent Caucasian male character to be the driver's um, avatar in all the cinematics and gameplay. Um, While not intentional, you know, this is a form of exclusion. Um, Especially when the character is so malleable. He's got no backstory. He's got nothing to say. Um, And yet, you know, we didn't give the player any agency in the character's um, appearance. So, you know, with the next title, we thought, well, we'll try to do a little bit better, but we didn't really. <laughs> in Horizon Two, uh, we had a diverse cast of characters, you know, male and female, all around you in cinematics. But the one who represented the player was still a generic white guy. Uh, we took great pains to use first-person POV and cinematics and things like that to not really draw attention to it. Um, but every time you swing the camera around to admire your car, or take a picture, or you know, uh, post your stuff online, or watch the replay, or got to the ending when he's holding the trophy up, I'm the champion. There he is, generic white guy. Um, and uh, we got called out again, as you can see, a game that seems to celebrate diversity everywhere else, locations, cars, you know, things you can do. It's odd that the avatar representing the player themselves would be overlooked. Duh. So, we knew we wanted to do something about it in the next game. Um, and uh, while we didn't have the scope in the schedule, which you hear that word a lot if you're in game development, we don't have scope. And if you're a designer like me, you're like, we'll make it. Uh, <laughs> we didn't also have time to do the robust character customization that we originally planned for Horizon 3, where you could change your skin tone, your eyes, your hair color, everything like that. All that stuff's first thing you get cut in scoping. But we absolutely knew we had to do something. So we turned to our uh, friends in UR, and uh, they reached out to the community and they conducted a, a poll. Uh, and this was not just Forza fans, it's uh, broader, broader gamers, people who like racing games in general. Um, and we wanted to see what do you think about character customization in a racing game? Um, so respondents reported that um, it's somewhat important to customize their character in a racing game, it wouldn't necessarily impact their purchase decision. But those who felt it was important said, uh, choosing a character that is like me is the most important to them. Um, and that rang really true with us. And w- what did that mean specifically? It really means that um, they want to choose gender and skin color most of all, um, gender and ethnicity specifically. Um, the other things you could say, well, hair color and hairstyle seems to be just as important as skin color. Um, if you looked at all the deep questionnaires, no, those two on the left were the most important. Great, we could actually tackle that. So, <clears throat> just the right slide, yes. The initial experience of Forza Horizon 3 uh, provided diverse selection of characters for the player to choose from, giving the player agency in not only what the character would look like, but also what the game would call them by in voiceover and menus and whatnot. And ultimately, you know, this is a step in making our series uh, more inclusive. Um, next, I'll play a clip uh, from a popular YouTuber who had just completed the initial driving experience and arrived at the festival in Australia, this is really a high point. You know, they just got to drive three exciting cars. You know, on the beach, through the jungles, chasing a helicopter. You know, they're filled with anticipation for the rest of the game, and it's also a point where we can either keep them on that high or we can really disappoint them. Um, so we had to be really careful about what we did next. Hopefully, you'll have audio here.
2: Definitely got me pumped to play this game. I actually think you can make a character in this game or at least like pick some like predefined characters. Yes, you can! You've never been able to do this before. You're always just like random dude. So we I think we need somebody. Okay, here's the options. Here's the options. I usually try and pick someone in this game that looks like me, but I'm kind of feeling this pink haired girl. Or I'm kind of feeling her. Which do we reckon? I'm gonna go pink haired girl. She's also got necklaces that I kind of tend to wear. Your character can be changed. That's cool. We're gonna pick her. Okay, and what should I call you? Please have Claire. These games never, ever have Claire. Never, ever, ever. Please, just this one time. Oh, they have it! It's spelled wrong, but they have Claire. So, I get this in comments a lot. I do not have an I in my name. It's like the Irish way of spelling it, but never mind. Like, at least we've still got Claire in
1: there. Yay, so big win. Big win for uh, making Claire happy, um, and lots of other players who found a character that may not have looked exactly like them, but gave them some agency and some choice, and finding a name that uh, the character would call you by. Um, One of my daughters did not find her name in the game. She was not pleased. <laughs> um, I will not make that mistake again. Uh, we did also have lots of nicknames uh, in case you couldn't find your name. We can't have every name in the world uh, but yeah, not yet. Maybe through the Cloud and AI we can. Uh, but anyway, the point is um, giving people some agency makes them feel really good and, and uh, about continuing to play this game that they just bought and they're excited about. So, we didn't know any of this and neither did Playground. Sorry, Chris, I put your picture up there without your permission, I think, but um, I'm trying to make a point here. Uh, We didn't know any of this and neither did Playground, but Claire happens to be a very popular YouTuber, um, and she just recently married one of the most popular YouTubers in the world, Ali A. Between the two of them, they have like 20 million followers or something like that. And uh, When they're delighted about our games, and there are 20 million viewers, many of them kids and, and women, and you know, people who aren't the typical hardcore Forza player, might think, "Huh, maybe that's a game for me. So, uh, we want to delight these broadcasters, so their fans are delighted and they play our games. We should strive to get more reactions like this from these types of um, broadcasters, but also from accessibility advocates like Chris, like Sightless Gamer. You know, People who maybe can't play your games fully yet because of barriers we haven't removed yet. Um, so, we're removing inclusivity barriers. We're working on some accessibility stuff. We have a lot of work to go. But it's really imperative that we remove as many barriers as we can so that everyone who's out there tubing or streaming or on Mixer is talking about how awesome Forza is to play. So, covering a little bit of uh, the inclusive part, um, I want to get into the sort of the nuts and bolts of accessibility, which I know a lot of you have been talking about today. Uh, First, you have to figure out where are you? Uh, How are we doing? Uh, After shipping uh, Horizon 2, we asked our test team to see how we would rate, uh, Tara mentioned something like this, if there were some sort of compliance test against the The guidelines posted at gameaccessibilityguidelines.com. So, easy enough. Our test team went up there and they uh, looked at the all the various forms of um, accessibility that are grouped into mobility, cognitive, vision, hearing, speech, general accessibility, etc. And then you know the basic ones, the ones that are easy to implement. We should all do these. Advanced and intermediate, which are harder, take more work. and we came up with, or the test team came back and said, "Here you go. Here's everything we could think of." Uh, without really reaching out to accessibility uh, advocates or disabled gamers or anything like that, this is really just a bunch of game gamers and testers, uh, game developers and testers sitting around and thinking, "How are we doing?" So, you can, at a high level, our compliance, as it were, uh, was pretty much as you'd expect. We're pretty good at hitting the basic stuff. Uh, Got some work to do in the intermediate stuff, and we really weren't doing much at all in the advanced areas. But if you look deeper per category, it was pretty clear that hearing and vision were two areas where we were doing pretty badly. Um, So, uh, we knew that uh, setting out on the next game, we'd have to do some bit of work in the uh, and I should say, specifically hearing suffered in the intermediate Levels and uh, our vision accessibility was more in advanced stuff. So we're already doing things that don't normally just come to mind, or we knew we needed to. So as Bill mentioned, the driving line that was uh, green, yellow, red—that was great, unless you were green, red colorblind, um, you couldn't really see it at all. Uh, so Bill and his team changed it to blue in Forza Horizon Five, or sorry, Forza Motorsport Five. I don't think we've made a Horizon Five yet. <laughs> Um, and that's great. And it also kind of took the line out of the weird neon world that it was in and made it blend naturally with the world. It made the game better. Um, we dropped the ball in Horizon 2, which shipped a year later with the green line again. Um, God, you know, some of this stuff happens when you have two teams sharing code and tech across a big ocean. You know, you've managed to share a lot of stuff, and some stuff slips through the cracks. And I must have sent Bill an email at some point saying, hey, why'd you guys turn the line blue? And he said, Oh, that was for colorblindness. And it was like, Ah, oh, why didn't we do that? Um, we also have a game, which is an open world game with thousands of icons and things to do. And everything's got its own color. And halfway through development of Horizon 2, um, about this time of year, so you're getting near the end, you got a few months to go before you really have to lock it down. I handed the controller to a coworker of mine, and he's playing it. And he's like, Where do I go next? And I said, what do you mean? Look at your map. He looks at the map. I don't know where to go. I said, look at the big red circle, dude. He looks at me and he says, dude, I can't see a big red circle because our big red circle is on a giant map of realistic browns and greens and dark reds and everything. And It's just like, uh, what are we doing? So, we tried to uh, hurry up and scramble and change some of our map icons, making sure that reds were replaced with pinks and Greens were replaced with neon greens or blues or things like that. and We kind of did okay when Horizon, uh, Horizon 2 came out to tick some of those boxes. But for Horizon 3, uh, we made it a priority to um, attack the game from the beginning uh, with this problem in mind. So, creating a bespoke UI or colorblind mode, which also Tara talked about, um, was way out of scope for engineering. Engineers are totally overtasked, UI teams are totally overtasked. What do we do? Uh, Playgrounds designers and artists sat down and said, well, maybe there's something we can do without tech support. So they just looked at all the icons they had um, and did a pass to make sure that we weren't relying on just color for any of them. We use outlines, uh, animations, flashes you name it and they all got smartphone apps that emulated multiple types of colorblindness, not just red-green and tried to make sure that as much as they could do it, the entire game, its UI, the maps, everything would be visible by people with multiple types of colorblindness, which is great Um, and we think we can even do more in the future. We've got some really cool ideas about how to go deeper, to keep ticking those advanced boxes, maybe do some high contrast, maybe someday Sightless Combat can play Forza, which he mentioned at the, uh, the Game Accessibility Conference, how he would like to do that and he'd give us some really neat ideas. We didn't used to imagine that, but now God, can somebody who's totally Sightless play a Forza game? Maybe if we, as Tara said, identify that as a problem and think about it, we can solve it. Okay. You've also heard this a lot today, I'm sure. Uh, Try playing your entire game without sound. Just turn it off. On our own initiative, we had our test lead do that, and he generated a long list of things that he simply did not understand. He didn't know how to play the game. and uh, We got a lot of these pretty late in development in Horizon 2. Um, We really couldn't do much about it. So, we Identified these as blocking bugs. They're no longer nifty, nice to have features that would be nice to have for people who you know couldn't hear as well as as us. Maybe it meant people literally cannot play the game. That kind of changed how we think about things. Subtitles and captions aren't the only solution for hearing impaired players, but it's a huge, huge part of it. Um, it's not a sexy or innovative new accessibility technology but I'm going to spend some time talking about it because I've seen teams tackle this. I've been part of tackling this over and over again for nearly 30 years that I've been making games. It astounds me that we don't have a, a solution, a standard across the industry that we can all just plug into and, and not worry about it, but uh, it is work that we have to do. They seem easy, right? Somebody's talking, just put some words on the bottom of the screen. No problem. The film and TV industry have been doing this for decades. Why can't we? Well, as you guys know, games are very different than linear media like films and television. We don't know how the player is going to play the game. There's all kinds of heads-up displays and sound engines and bespoke rendering engines and all kinds of things that just make it life so difficult if you're trying to set out to do subtitles. And it's up to developers to choose the support for subtitling that best suits their game. And I should add that even if there was an industry standard, uh, I think um, developers should still be able to choose what subtitle uh, system is best for their game. Some movies do this too. They do subtitling different than just putting it at the bottom of the screen. So, we ended up rolling our own homegrown solution. Uh, Microsoft Narrator is a great step forward in player-to-player communication in menu navigation but it's just not working for capturing you know people shouting as they're jumping a car across your highway as you're driving at 200 miles an hour through the trees in the forest while a radio dj is talking to you and all this other stuff is going on we really had to go all over again and there was nothing in our engine in motorsport or horizon that would do that for us either typically we'd pause the game pop up and say you know here's your instructions and then we'd let you play again well, we wanted a system that didn't interrupt the flow of gameplay. and uh, we had to start from scratch again. And you do this by, you know, prioritizing the work. Uh, we had several main characters who speak. We want players to understand them easily um, without interrupting the action. We have a lot of HUD going on. As I said, you're driving 200 miles an hour through a forest. So we need to add a glance clarity. So, We also needed a deliberate approach to reduce the impact on content creators. Uh, So, the engineering team decided to to tackle the work of making an automated system, uh, which is important. So, Playground ended up making a new subtitle system that provided automatic text wrapping. So, uh, words naturally get broken up and pushed to the next line. I think we did two lines deep. Uh, Automatic timing based on the length of the voice file. Automatic scrolling, and use, each character uses an animated unique uh, color and icon to go with their name. All of these things helped make you just glance at what's going on and what do you know? When you're playing the game and you can hear things uh, normally, it makes the game clearer to play. Because, as I said, there's all this stuff going on, all these engines screaming at you, all these horns honking, and you hear somebody talking, and if you can just glance out the corner of your eye and see words to go with what you're hearing, makes it better, better for everybody. It uh, reminds me of a stat I heard at the Accessibility Conference. Uh, Ubisoft, I guess, had done a poll of their Assassin's Creed players and found that 60 percent of their players prefer to play with subtitles on. So, uh, it's everybody who plays the game benefits from this work. There's so much more to do. Uh, even with all the work we've done to improve subtitling, in Forza Horizon 3, we have so much more to do. We still don't subtitle all spoken dialogue, like radio DJs who carry on some banter while you're driving. Uh, you don't see captions for what music is playing, or what the lyrics to the music are, or you know, a sound of fireworks going off in the sky or something like that. So, there's a lot more custom work that we'd have to do. But again, it's about prioritization. The things that blocked you from completing the game were the first things to tackle and then we move down the list. And I guess lastly, on the subject of subtitles, um, until there's a standard solution, it really is on us to deliver this for all of our players. Um, using Horizon 3 as an example, it's easy to see how it can be daunting for development teams um, to tackle these kinds of accessibility features. Um, and it's easy to understand how sometimes they don't survive scoping compared to gameplay features like Auction House or you know, some other thing that maybe in our minds took priority. Um, But there's a big important difference in how we're thinking about these things. We are willing to cut features that we think a lot of players would think are cool, so that we can make our game playable by more players. Uh, Yeah. So, uh, taking the years of work uh, we did to broaden our players via driving assists in the Forza Motorsport and Horizon Series the more open USB platform. We can now merge them with the adaptive controller. Um, This is really exciting stuff. Um, I don't know how people are going to play the game with this. You can plug in all kinds of things. I've done it with several things myself, it's pretty cool. It just unlocks more opportunities, more accessibility. This is Solomon Romney playing Horizon 3 with just a foot pedal and a thumbstick. Um, this device will be proudly shown amongst its perif- peripheral peripheral, it's one of my favorite words to pronounce in a microphone. Peripheral peers at E3. And we're excited by the possibilities with this device, but also uh, the possibilities that copilot and mixer and controller sharing over mixer might lead in terms of accessibility. What happens if this controller is mixed with mixer and copilot? and controller sharing. Um, I don't know that I've seen examples of that yet, but it kind of blows my mind to think what people might be able to do. Um, so, there's still a lot of work ahead and it's not easy. Uh, everybody in here who makes games knows that making games is really, really hard. Uh, former LucasArts colleague of mine, some of you may have heard of named Tim Schaefer. Often said that games are fantasy fulfillment to his team and to everybody to inspire them. He's absolutely right, but it's really, really hard. Why? Making software that actually works is really hard. Ask anybody in Windows or Google or Apple who makes software. It's hard. Making software that, act, or sorry, making entertainment that actually entertains is hard. Ask anybody in show business. We all go see lots of movies and watch lots of TV shows that don't entertain us, but a lot of people worked really hard on them. Making software that works and entertains is really hard because you're putting together people that don't normally go together—super technical engineers with, you know, artsy-fartsy creative types and designers—and they have to work together to do all this stuff. And then you have this uh, challenge: making software that works and entertains everyone is, well, gosh, what do you do? So, this is where inclusive design and accessible design come into play. Removing barriers to play for players of all ages, background skill, and physical or mental abilities is kind of the holy grail. How do you approach that challenge? Where do you begin? First, everyone on your team needs to have empathy for players of all backgrounds and ability. Um, If they don't, teach them, inform them. Keep them part of this discussion. Put the same kind of dedication you put into making your games fun into making your games accessible. Everybody's got the skills and the talent. Like Tara said, we're all problem solvers. Make it a problem that you need to solve. Um, Some people on your team will have more passion for accessibility. That's totally natural. Um, Find out who they are and empower them to affect change, to make your game more accessible, to motivate the team, to run a sprint that tackles one or two accessibility problems so you can see what it's like to make improvements. There's also help out there. Everybody knows the game accessibility guidelines, inclusivity, um, enable at MS. There's lots of, lots of places to go. and Taking it all in at once can be daunting or overwhelming for development teams. You can't do it all at once, but you can make meaningful progress. You need both passion and patience, and a long view of where you want your series to go, not just the current game you're working on, a franchise over years. And then, um, how do you know what to tackle and in what order? And I mentioned this a couple times, but you need to make accessibility a priority. You know, as game developers, one of the most powerful tools we have. Is effective prioritization and design scoping. <clears throat> at turn ten and at playground, this happens all the time. We turn a hundred cool ideas. Everybody's got cool ideas. Like we have a we have a thousand of them by breakfast. You got to turn a hundred ideas into ten features you can actually ship and ship well. We do this every time we make a game. I think Bill generated a list of two hundred features from brainstorms in Fort. Four that we all took back to our desks and sat down and thought. Well, I'll take 20, you take 30, and I think we shipped somewhere between seven and ten of them. This is a natural part of game development, and if you get really good at it, you do things really well. You take the things that you can do well and you only do those things. And That's no different at Playground. They'll spend two to three months coming up with the concept for the game, all the great things they can do. A world that's three times bigger than the one we're going to ship and then we spend twice that time honing that design, scoping and scoping and scoping before we ever actually start production. I mean there's prototyping and stuff going on, but we're not going to build anything until the whole team is in in alignment with what we can build. So, uh, priority is generally handled in two ways. There's priority and uh, severity. Best way to think of the two is priority is the order in which you got to do the work. Um, Severity is the impact to the customer. These are intertwined, but you have to understand severity before you can assign an effective priority. Uh, And there's lots of different areas, you know, performance, graphics, gameplay, all these things. But kind of generally, things get bucketed into three features. Gotta do it, really should do it. Geez, it'd be nice if we could do that. That's kind of crude. I mean, we have much, much deeper. And more granular um, ways of prioritization, prioritizing things, but our brains kind of bucket things into those those three. So when you have thousands of items in your features backlog or your bug database, uh, where does it accessibility fit in? In the old days, they'd just be battling with cool gameplay features like the auction house, right? Or more, you know some character customization thing. Not anymore for us. Uh, what if lack of accessibility were severity one blocking bug, just like a game crash? That changes your perspective. Uh, to us, accessibility is gameplay. Um, you have to make your game, to make your game as accessible to as many players as possible, which we've always been trying to do. Age, gender ability, um, you have to think of accessibility as a critical component of gameplay, a requirement for the feature to actually work. We made a lot of progress over the years, but um, we're at a point now where we don't think of an accessibility feature as a thing to prioritizing against gameplay features anymore. We think of barriers to accessibility as high severity blocking bugs. There are priorities, of course, within those. Like I said, we don't subtitle everything yet, but we will, at some point. We had to get the hard stuff out of the way—the stuff that blocks a player from proceeding—and that's where this comes into play. You know, if it's so overwhelming, just start with one problem to solve, or two. Uh, you know, start with an accessibility sprint in your pre-production schedule pick a thing you know you need to work on, and you'll find great ideas and passion from the team to help guide the efforts and prioritize the work. So, sorry for all that rambling, but um, in Horizon 3, we set out not only to make the game more inclusive with character selection, we also set out to make it more accessible, primarily in two areas, vision and hearing, specifically colorblindness and subtitling. The two things we thought we could do something about this time around effectively and we know there's so much more we can do. Um, both of those things took a fair amount of work. We embrace that work now as part of our normal game development process. It's an important step forward and that's what we must con- and can continue to do is keep moving forward. So, that's a lot to think about planning early and, and empathetically, uh, you're going to delight players. Thank you all for having us and if there are any questions, Bill and I would be happy to answer them for you. Got
0: the other microphone around
1: oh, here.
0: Sorry, I got oh, that right here. Yeah. Uh, there we go. I'll take that for questions. And uh, Yeah, who's got the first one uh, over here?
1: There you go. Uh, so, you guys did a good job uh, explaining how you're able to use multiple controllers, soaring up even like the Nintendo controller is a great example of Um, taking your complex control scheme and really boiling it down to the true essence of what's necessary to play. And so, in the experience that I've run into in the AT space, uh, if you have just like, oh, I can't use my right hand, just move it to another body part, like Copilot and some of those other things are are good uh, places where you can address that. But for people that have limited capabilities and therefore, they can't push more than say two buttons or one button, they still want to be able to have a satisfying game experience and, and clearly you've kind of gone, gone down that road. Do you have any recommendations for other games where like fighting games or other things where they can consider what limited uh, button input style experiences look like?
0: Yeah, um, honestly, um... Uh, you probably have heard it all day options, 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 right? The more options you have, the better. Uh, and then uh, being able not just to have toggles, but ranges of things, um, and turning things that are normally button presses. You heard a lot about QTEs into single button presses. Um, I know, like God of War just did that. Um, I think it's, again, just on that back end, and it's a mentality thing more than anything else because everyone assumes you're breaking the game, you're making the game dumb by doing this. Um, if you can just get past that, um, you'd be surprised how many people out of, they're not just disability, life stage, right? You know, you've know, you got players that are older. We've got, I'm, I'll make fun of our studio manager. He's, he's older in his life stage and, and he doesn't have a lot of time for games, but he loves gaming and so he just wants to experience the content. He just wants to see the narrative, right? So, the accessibility tools that are built, um, they empower everybody. Uh, but anyway, um, honestly, it's options, options, options more than anything else. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, so, you mentioned it's important to make all, everyone empathetic for all players. What's been successful for you at your studio to help like get that to everyone? Well, I said at the beginning, I think doing a design sprint with someone like Cherry, um, having them, our team kind of walk through essentially how they, how they play content, what's the type of games they enjoy and why. Um, you know, we do extensive BI to look at our, our core customers, the experiences they like, and when you talk to you know some of these SMEs, it's very similar to some of the stuff that they want. Um, and so, it, like anything, when you you know you walk a mile in a, in a man's shoes, you can really be more empathetic to it. So that was the first thing we've done, and then essentially, like ever since then, we've been doing internal roadshows. Um, uh, with our within our studio specifically uh, talking about obviously the work that we've done the groundwork that we have but how how much more we have to go Um, and like I said I can't stress it enough um, getting people in that that have that experience that you don't it changes something from sympathy to empathy. Any other questions. All right, thank you guys again, I appreciate it.